Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. For anyone returning and who has been listening to the show this month, welcome back. And for anyone new, thank you for tuning in. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and there are so many topics to discuss about mental health that when I was trying to figure out which ones to bring to the show, I have to say it was it was really not easy. But that being said, I was thinking about what it is that I tend to hear about in my office over and over again, or find myself getting asked about the most when I'm not working. And that is really how I decided to focus on today's show. So I can't tell you how often I hear my patients who have either had or recovered from their own disordered eating or eating disorders, that they want to know what to do to prevent their own daughters from having to go through what they did. And rightfully so, they're worried that they will do or say the wrong things. And even from those who have not had a history, I often get questions from concerned parents who want to know more about if there's a right or wrong way to feed their children or um, if there's a right or wrong way to talk to their children about food or exercise. And I get it. They just want to know what they're doing, if it's right and if it's wrong. And, I, you know, I hesitate to use the words, quote unquote, right or wrong, but I think that's really what it comes down to. You know, I'm a parent myself and, you know, I, you just want the best for your kid. You want to just know that whatever you're doing, um, you're guiding them in the right path. And, you know, I know firsthand too, parents put a lot of pressure on themselves and they want answers and that they oftentimes turn to the internet for them. And unfortunately that can lead anyone down a confusing rabbit hole because there's so many contradictory opinions and people doling out advice and you know what, it can make anyone's head spin. So here to help us make sense out of all of this is someone who works with parents each and every day who are asking questions just like this. Amelia Sherry is founder of nourishher.com, which is an online resource for moms who want to heal their own relationship with food while raising girls who never have to do the same. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, Diet Proof Your Daughter, A Mother's Guide to Raising Girls Who Have Happy, Healthy Relationships with Food and Body. Well, Amelia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Christina. Well, you know, this is such a great topic. I know we've talked before the show, but um, I, I do get so many questions from parents about so many things. And I, you know, one of the questions I get a lot is, oh my gosh, like, am I saying or doing anything that is going to perpetuate, you know, an eating disorder or, or body image issue with my kid, especially my daughter, if I've had eating disorder struggles in my own past, um, and I'm wondering for you, like, do you hear those kinds of questions? Like what's going on in your world with your, you know, the people that you work with? Sure. Um, I, to be honest, I get a lot of questions right before that, where it's the, it's almost like the other side of the coin where it's like, what can I do to help them be healthy? And then when we start talking about the best way to approach it, which isn't 
the traditional way, which is really pressuring them to eat more fruits and vegetables and to avoid sugars and things like that, we talk about being a little more relaxed about it. Then sometimes um, parents can sort of spiral into like, oh my gosh, did I make a mistake? You know, did I do something that was hurtful? And what I always like to say is like, no one thing that you've done or said is ever going to trigger an eating disorder. And also eating disorders as you know, you're the expert, but they're multifactorial and just the way that your parent parent around food is not enough to set you off on an eating disorder path. So we don't need to be overly um, petrified of saying the wrong thing so much that we just tap out. That's another thing that happens sometimes. You get so worried um, either that we're not feeding them correctly healthfully enough, and I'm using air quotes, um, and we can talk more about what that means in a minute, or if we're um, being too lax, you know, or maybe might trigger something negative then that we don't get involved at all, or we sort of step back from the responsibility that we have as a parent with food, and we don't want to do that either. We, that's another reason I always encourage parents to remind themselves that being a little more relaxed about it is, um, is a good way to go. Okay. And I love that you said you're putting like healthy in quotes, um, because I think that's, that's confusing. People say, well, what is healthy? And, um, certainly, you know, I hear a lot of pushback when I say, well, there's no healthy or unhealthy foods. And certainly, you know, people go, of course there are, um, there's a healthy way to eat. And I think you alluded to that when you said, well, people think healthy is the fruits, vegetables, and no sugar. Um, and so like, how do you, kind of define what that means to people? Yeah, um, that's an excellent question. One of the things that I always start off every nutrition counseling session with, you know, I always say, why Why are you here? How can I help you? What, what do you want? And the parent inevitably will always say, I want my child to be healthy. And then that is a really vague word. It means something so different to so many people. Um, and I think they're expecting me to tell them that, what that means. But I always follow up with, okay, so what does healthy look like for you? Um, and it can mean so many different things for so many people. I've had very um, young kids tell me it means that you work out all the time. You're not a beast. Just very um, out there, you know, like just random things that they guess that they have heard or have gotten into our thinking. Um, parents sometimes won't know exactly what they what they think healthy means. Um, they won't actually know in that moment they might realize that they're not sure what they're actually going for. Um, and what I like to point out is that most of the eating edicts right, that we get in this culture that we live in are focused on maintaining um, a very like a high level of physical health. So we eat for physical health and we also equate fitness with physical health. So we think we're eating to be physically healthy and thin. Um, and in, when in reality, health is much broader than our physical health, right? So the other aspect of our overall well-being or health is our social health. So our relationships and eating um, well requires being in relationship with other people to some extent, um, especially children. They need parents to guide them and they need that too, to be like a pleasant um, 
part of eating. You don't want to come to the table if it's a stressful environment or if we're always bringing up tough topics. Um, we want that to be a pleasant um, place to be again so that we return to it. We do a good job, especially in the case of kids, when they're actually at the table. They eat to their fullness. Um, they feel relaxed about um, their choices. You don't want to feel criticized and pressured and things like that. And, you know, I don't think people really look at the other aspects that you just brought up in terms of, you know, the social aspect, especially, um, you know, if you think about it, when people go and make plans for events, um, birthday parties or celebrations or holidays or things like that, it is so social. There's always food there. And, you know, one of the biggest times I hear that trigger people is holidays, you know, people are always very um, worried about, oh my gosh, like the holidays are coming and I've got to eat in front of people or what's going to be there. Um, and to your point, if kids, you know, are very nervous or anxious or have a lot of food issues um, or don't feel comfortable around food or eating around people, I can imagine that just is something that starts very young. Yeah, holidays um, are like a double whammy in the sense of you have exposure to a lot of um, really special dishes that you don't get a lot of access to because they take a lot of time to make. There's a lot of, um, you, you know, extra preparation um, that goes into them. So you may feel, um, it, it makes perfect sense with that in mind that you might feel compelled to eat them a little more than you normally would have or eat past fullness, I guess, because you're so excited to have access to this limited food. And then the other, the other second thing that's coming into play are these relationships and how people, um, if there is pressure in the family to make, and again, I'm using quote unquote healthy choices, or if there is concern about the child's weight, either underweight or overweight, that child can feel um, that pressure a lot more intensely because now there may be multiple family members watching over them. And sometimes I've had many cases where a mom um, or a dad is very sophisticated in the sense that they're trying to protect their child from diet culture and weight stigma and really protect what we call eating competence or their good eating skills. But the extended family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins come into the mix at a holiday, right? And they may have much different, um, less sophisticated and nuanced views about it. So holidays can be really tough and, um, and it's understandable. Yes, I mean, there's so this complex. My brain is like, <laughs> so many things to ask right? but I mean, just starting with the home too. Like, um, so people, how do people initially come to you? And um, is it because they're wanting to figure out how um, to feed their child? Is their child typically having struggles with eating, or are they just wondering in general, like, how do I feed my child? Like, what what typically comes in first? Sure. So in my private practice, I have a lot of parents that come to me through referrals and it's um, it's either for their own eating or for their children. So I work with adults and children and um, it could be children. I have a special certification in diabetes management. So their child might have been deemed by their pediatrician to be at risk for diabetes. They might come to me through that um avenue. I also have Nourish Her, which is another aspect of my business, which is really geared towards mothers specifically, um, mothers who are raising girls. Um, and those moms usually have had some sort of eating trauma or situation in the past. It could be chronic dieting, 
disordered eating all the way to a, a full-blown eating disorder, um, that they are really um, very conscientious about not wanting to pass along to their daughters. Um, so they that's a much broader sort of referral network than the actual um, private practice. So those are the two main ways that um, people typically come to me. I can imagine listeners probably would be more interested in hearing about the Nourish Earth um, path or, or program that you do um, have. And, you know, I, I think that is a concern, you know, and I'm glad that we've, I think we've come far in the field that we're not blaming moms saying, oh, you cause, you know, your child to have an eating disorder. As you said, it's multifaceted and there's lots of things that come into play for somebody to have an eating disorder. Um but I do think that's a fear that people have um, of, my gosh, am I going to kind of perpetuate this in my own child? Um, so what what do you focus on when somebody comes in and kind of has, you know, this history themselves? Yeah. Um, yeah, it could be someone with trauma, like something serious, like an eating disorder, or it could be someone who's just aware, like you said, that we've come so far, just aware of like the cultural pressures on our eating, like diet culture, um, or what I call healthism, like a real um, hold, like a uh, on just being as healthy as possible, um, which can really actually muck up eating, ironically. Um, the, what I work on, I actually have a program that I do um, as a group with the groups, a group of moms. And then sometimes some people want to do more independent work. So we do the same curriculum, but one-on-one. -on -one. The um, framework basically is um, the beginning of it. We talk a lot about um, understanding weight and the unlinking weight and health. That's a real fundamental thing that we need to get clear on. Um, so we do some a lot of work on that. We understand more about the research and, and um, the things that really do impact our health and well-being, um, not necessarily our body weight. Then we talk about dieting and how ineffective diets are, how harmful diets are, why um, even if we're concerned about our child's weight or changing weight or their pediatrician has designated as an issue, why we do not want to go down the road of restriction and dieting. And then we move into um, mom's own relationship with food. Um, and we it's based on an eating competence model from Ellen Satter. So eating competence is a fancy word for eating skills. So we build, we rebuild and make sure that our eating skills are um, in a good solid place and that they're not perpetuating weight stigma. They're not perpetuating healthism. They're not perpetuating um, diet culture. Um, and that's where we talk about attitudes towards foods, what our actual skills are with in terms of like, taking care of ourselves with food, not necessarily how good of a chef are we, but hey, are we actually willing to put in the work it takes to be a good eater, which means planning out our day or planning out our week, you know, with our eating. That's actually really challenging for a lot of us. And I think it's because making decisions about eating is so wrought with conflict because of all this information that's coming in our head. Is it healthy enough? Is it too indulgent? Is it, there's just so many um, questions that are going on, which are really unnecessary from my point of view as a nutrition professional, which a lot of people are surprised to hear, but eating is a lot more simple than we have made it. Um, other aspects are our own internal regulation. So how intuitive are we or how 
intuitive eating is very popular. So that is like a very popular way to approach it. Um, but it's essentially called attuned eating or internal regulation. How well are you able actually to sense your internal signals of hunger and fullness, um, which can get very muted and dulled with a lot of a lot of dieting and a lot of noise from diet culture and health culture. Um, and so once you're really solid on what, what truly makes someone a good eater, an eater that's eating in a way to support their overall well-being, their mental health, their social health, and their physical health, then we move into the um, third phase of it, which is feeding skills. And we talk about how to approach feeding our I'll say children, because a lot of the parents I work with might have a daughter that they're primarily focused on, but mo most of them have multiple children um, of all genders. So we talk about feeding skills and how can we shift the way we're approaching feeding our kids to really support eating competence as opposed to support um, either a certain BMI or even what can just feel like a general, I call it like food, uh, food. Uh, parenting culture where there's just like this feeling sometimes of like, well, I'm not being a good parent if my daughter doesn't eat, you know, kale salad and salmon, you know, that's so false and untrue. And, but there's still that pressure of like, are, isn't my child like sophisticated enough with their eating? Are they eating? And again, I use air quotes, healthy enough or what culture um, is deeming to be healthy. So that's the third phase. We call it feeding skills. And then, um, in the last phase, we do, um, we talk about movement, about body image. We talk about conflict at the table with our parenting partner, which is a, a, an ish, a part where everyone wants to stop and, and talk a lot. Um, and the body image is what actually lingers for a long time. And a lot of people stay in touch after the program to continue to work on that. And we know from research, that's the hardest element really to budge and to shift, right? Um, so it makes sense that we want to keep working on it for ourselves um, and our daughters if they are verbalizing, being concerned about the way they look. Well, it's, I mean, I'm just listening going, that's so comprehensive and wonderful. And, you know, I love that you start with just talking about like, you know, teasing out like health and weight and them not being connected, because I think that's the biggest hurdle, at least I find I still get so many DMs and people like mad at me when I say they're not connected, you know, you can't look at somebody and tell their physical health and well-being um, because of course you can. What are you talking about? You're crazy. You know, I get out all the time and listeners are probably going, what are they talking about? Um, I still think that is the biggest hurdle for people to overcome. Um, and I can imagine do parents struggle with that? Like, well, gosh, if my child looks a certain way, like, of course I have to, you know, restrict the sugar in the house or I have to make them eat only vegetables or I have to put them on a diet or the doctor said, you know, I have to watch, start watching what they're eating. So I have to keep all the quote unquote junk food out of the house. Like I'm not doing my job as a good parent if I, if I don't, because, you know, look at their body. Um, I'm just wondering how you tackle that because, you know, obviously a kid can have any shape, size, body, weight, and be healthy, you know, physically healthy. And our society saying, no, they can't. And there's such a weight bias in our medical field too, saying, no, they can't. You know, they got these growth charts, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, how do you combat that with the parents? How do you help them kind of come to peace with that? 
Yeah. Yeah. The pressure to focus on weight um, is very, very strong. And a lot of the parents that I work with through my private practice are getting that twofold because they're often coming to me from a provider, like a medical doctor who's said, your child needs to lose weight or they're going to get diabetes or heart disease, you know? So it's very, very strong. Um, One thing what I do focus on what we call experiential learning. So I will give information about what we know about, say, restricting all, you know, sugar um, and what we know about pressuring or, or um, suggesting gently with some, you know, in a like just just tone and language sometimes it can impact the way a child might feel pressure, um, which, by the way, I know always comes from the best, best place. All these things come from such a good place that with the parents I work with and parents in general. Um, so what I'm saying is that I can explain how some of these might be working against your goal, which is to to help your child have overall good health. Um, and then the experiential part is like, let's try them. Hey, let's use some of these techniques and see how it impacts your child's eating and behavior. Um, as far as un, um, taking apart weight and health, that is very challenging. Um, some parents are very relieved to hear it. Um, it, it is very complicated and, um, I explain it. I have just written a book, which isn't out yet, but it will be coming out um, over this summer in 2022, fingers crossed. But I have a whole chapter on weight and I really take things apart and explain it. Um, yes, in research, I'm not saying that research doesn't, there aren't many, many large studies that don't associate body weight and BMI with certain health outcomes. Well, we have to also acknowledge that they're associations, they're not causation. So just because you're in a larger body does not mean that you are going to have X, Y, and Z disease. And um, it's really our habits, the things we do from day to day that impact our risk of disease, our risk of diabetes, um, for example. Um, and with that in mind, and then also holding in your mind the idea that weight loss or dieting is such such a high failure rate and the leading risk factor for eating disorder and probably so many subclinical disordered eating, that with those two things in mind, I, um, I have a lot of ammo, I think, to sort of give parents just at least let's consider some of these alternative approaches. And again, nourish her, things move along um, more quickly because usually that mother has already experienced a lot of this, these negative things themselves. They've either been stigmatized because of their weight and healthcare or just feel so stressed about the way they look or um, they've tried dieting themselves and it's destroyed their lives, you know? So they're uh, more open to it. Um, and it can be a little, little more faster down the track, but I, I have to say parents always want the best for their children. And they are, um, I've had many parents that have been very open-minded about it. Once we really talk about, Hey, what's going on at the table? Um, how is it working with you? restricting foods or cutting them out of the house? And how do you see them behaving around those foods when they say are in high school or have more autonomy, you know? Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's 
it's challenging, but I give parents a lot of credit for sort of going there and, and trusting me. And, and I've had so much success. That's the best thing. You know, they see their, you know, their child feels so much more relaxed at the table or maybe isn't focusing on their weight as much. And if they see biomarkers changing as well, their A1C lowering, um, blood pressure, things like that. I mean, it's it's all good things. And I, I think I, I love that you keep saying like, parents are coming from a good place because I think that's actually true. I think there is that, at least I hear a lot of the fear of I'm doing something wrong. If I keep what society is telling me are these quote unquote, bad foods in the house, like I'm doing something to perpetuate the, the physical, like, like bad health, if you will, in my child, or I'm doing something wrong. And there's that fear of like feeling guilty. Um, so it's almost like people go to another extreme of, I'm going to keep everything in the house that's only organic or only this food or only whatever, you know, diet culture is telling them they need to. Um, but I, you know, to your point, I think that creates like this all or nothing <laughs> mentality. Um, and so if, if a parent's like really scared to actually like challenge themselves and bring in like a variety of foods or have more like quote unquote bad foods, like how do you kind of talk them down the ledge? <laughs> Yeah, well, we, well, um, it's a little more complicated than just bringing foods into the house or allowing them. Um, we, I operate from, um, something called the division responsibility, which is intuitive eating with another layer of what we call structure. So we want to have very structured meals in the sense with our, when we're parenting and doing what we say, providing leadership to our child or guidance, we want to have set meal times, set snack times. And parents, especially for younger kids, and it, it shifts as they get older, but really want to decide what the options are at each meal and snack. And then from within the meal, the child does all the body-led parts of eating, meaning they decide how much or how little and whether they want to eat it if they like it or not. So the way you can do it in um, a more safer, safe-feeling way, I will say, for these parents is, hey, let's, what is like a food that you feel conflicted about or guilty about or worried your child's going to eat and have repercussions. Let's take one food at a time and add it to a snack or a meal. And then um, at the meal, let's let the child have what we call full permission with it. If they want to eat a whole bunch of it, that's okay. Um, when the meal's over, it's over and we put it back away. It's not that the child now can have access to that food whenever they want. Um, at any moment during the day, um, not because we're restricting, but because we are also trying to teach our children how to plan meals, prioritize, you know, in real life, we can't just, your kids can't just stop in the middle of school and like go to their locker, right? Or go and get food. That's not realistic. So um, we want to kind of offer a lot of, we don't want to kind of, we want to offer a lot of permission, full permission within the structure of a meal. So doing it one thing at a time can be helpful. Um, and it doesn't have to be every meal. It can be once in a while, just like you have to use, um, to quote Ellen Satter again, who designed the division responsibility, you have to use good sense. You're not going to eat. I keep picking on Oreos, but you don't have to. You're not going to eat Oreos every single meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know because you know that that's not going to feel so good. Because you're an adult, you have ex more experience than a child, and you're not going to feed your child that um, at all times either. Because they, 
they do need guidance in that sense. Um, so it's little, it's baby steps and it's very individualized. So the more, unfortunately, the way it works is the more restricted a child has been, again, usually from a very good place. It's the parents who are really, really trying to micromanage things because they're so worried. The more restricted a child's been, the longer it can take for them to get back in touch with that internal regulation and feel they need to kind of trust you as well. Is it really okay if I have all of these? Um, so we need to do that. We need to to do it consistently, allow that permission consistently enough where they can really trust you and say, oh yeah, it is okay. And guess what? It really loses its luster, right? It's it's It does in time. But um, so a child who's been just slightly restricted, you know, may just come out of it much quicker more quickly and a child who has been more, um, there's been more restrictions on or limits on their eating. It may take them a longer time to really trust that, oh yes, it is okay if I have a lot of this. Um, and they can start to feel what it feels like much quick, uh, eventually as well. Like, you know, when I ate all that at snack time, I wasn't interested in dinner or my tummy hurt or what the real, the real way we know how to regulate our eating. They become more intuitive. If your listeners are, you know, um, familiar with intuitive eating, they become better at, at being intuitive eaters. Does that, does that help? Yeah. And I, I you know, I was, you know, um, kind of promote, like you want to feel better physically and emotionally after you're done eating. And certainly if you're whatever it is, you can eat something and it doesn't agree with you, whatever it is. And so it's kind of, I kind of come from the point of wanting to kind of figure out what works for you and your body. And if you restrict things, you're not going to know. Um, but also I think if you restrict things, my sense is, you know, once a kid is out on their own and, and they don't know how to interact with certain foods, they're going to end up binging because it's like, whoa, what is this? Like, I, I don't have a relationship with certain types of foods and it's going to be, um, like, oh my gosh, floodgates open. Like, here we go. Yeah, absolutely. And we see that in research, like the more restricted a child is with a certain food, the more likely they'll overeat it when they're not in the presence of um, the parent and exactly what you're saying. Like we need to kind of give, give them um, the opportunity to experiment with these foods um, before they are out in the world. So we don't want to like re in re realistically, those foods aren't going to be absent from their environment as soon as they leave home. Right. So we want to um, give them some experience with it in sort of a safe environment and also modeling how to balance them with the rest of the meal. Like back to Oreos, you know, it's, it's, um, it's sugar and carbohydrates, and it can be balanced with other proteins and fats. Um, and it, it, it can be offered in a balanced way, let's say. I love that. Um, this, now, do you also talk to parents about, like, when we talk about, like, diet-proofing a child, um, you know, just the realities of living in our culture and children having like exposure to hearing, um, you know, things on social media or hearing about dieting or hearing things from peers at school or messages from things, you know, people outside of the home. Um, yeah, absolutely. So we want to try to neutralize those ideas in the home as much as possible. Um, if the parent is, we, well, the first step is to not talk about dieting or your own body or weight concerns in front of your child. Um, 
when the child comes home and is concerned about weight or body, it's very important. First of all, um, one of the most important nuances, I think, is to acknowledge what they're saying and don't dismiss it by saying, oh, no, 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 you're fine the way you are. You're beautiful the way you are. Your weight is good where it is. Um, not that those aren't true, but we don't want to deny the fact that there is um, a bias in our culture and your child is feeling it and we want to acknowledge that it's there. We can empathize and say, hey, I felt, I mean, like that when I was your age, if that is in fact true and something you, you want to share to normalize it. Um, we can also reinforce our own values, even though culture and some people think being thinner means they're better than everyone. That's not what we value in our family. We value being kind. We value helping people. We value being intelligent or working hard, you know, achievement, whatever your system of beliefs is in your family. So kind of emphasizing that, yes, that that's not how we think. I do hear that it's out there and you're feeling it right now, but that's not what we value and how we see you. And, um, and then to just as children get older and are using, you know, social media is a, a huge, um, is something that's very important to, to talk about and to, to talk with your children about. We know that, um, exposure to the thin ideal is the biggest, I guess it's called the sociocultural, um, reason or, or in way that eating disorders get triggered. So the more your child is seeing this thin ideal, the more they're going to be influenced by its common sense, right? But there is a differentiation between, in my mind, between media and social media. Media is more static, a book, a film, a television program. You can actually consume it with your child or you can see it as well and you can discuss it with your child. Um, social media is so much more dynamic and it is responding to you. First of all, it's consumed more in isolation because your daughter or your son's going to be looking at it without you looking over their shoulder. And they it, it responds to their interests. So if they're lingering on a picture, liking someone working out or some weight loss shake, it's going to show them more of that, right? So we need to be hyper vigilant about the social media um, that our children are consuming and um there are many different tactics to, to to do that i'm not an expert in that area but doing a social media audit talking about the purpose of it having contracts with your child like this is why we gave the phone or we have the phone this is what we use it for you know entertainment or research or connection um and reevaluating that and revisiting it. Hey, what accounts are you following? Let's look at them. How are they making you feel? Are they doing what we said, meaning connecting you with a friend or educating you in a positive way? Or are they harming us, right? So um, my children are still younger, so I can't speak from experience, but I can speak from um, listening to um, recommendations about how to work with eating disorder patients and their social media. Yeah, I, um, you know, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I do want to just say, like, I have heard very disturbing things uh, consistently over probably the last year where so many of the teenagers I've been working with have got it in their mind that, you know, they're watching, I guess, a lot of, people on social media, influencers, if you will, talking about what they eat in a day. And and they'll 
go in every day and they'll show, this is what I eat in a day. This is what I do in a day. And they're trying to emulate that. And they think that is what is they need to do to look like these people. Um, and these people will all show their bodies and like how quote unquote great they look, you know, and um, there's this myth out there that like 1200 calories is, is the, the top end of what somebody needs to eat. And that scares me to, um, when I hear this and I, I guess it got in my mind cause I've heard it not once, twice. I heard it so many times now that I'm going, what is this? What, why is this the magic number? Um, it's very scary to me. Yeah, I agree. That's why, um, as a parent, we need to understand what our child's looking at and to reframe it. And we need to, first of all, give some reality. Um, just because you eat a certain amount of food and certain type of food does not mean your body is going to look like someone else's body. That's completely false. Um, the other thing is that what is right for one person or the number of calories that one person needs to eat is completely different than another person, even if they're the same height, weight, gender. Our bodies metabolize foods much differently and at much different rates. And as much as we have, and parents will say, well, what about the RDAs? And those are guidelines and generalizations. They are not specific to your child. We have many other pieces of research because we needed guidelines, right? But we have other pieces of research that show thousands of calorie difference for what for children like one group of children all in the same age um so we can't we have to again like understand where our body is and be more um aligned with our own like what our nutritional needs are and we can have guidance but we can't um we can't take everything we have to put our own experience in there right and just going back to the social media that's why parents have to be there just to kind of be the voice of reason, right? And say, this isn't realistic. Um, what one person needs in a day has nothing to do with what another person needs to eat in a day. And they aren't going, it's not going to give you a specific body type. You can also question, where is this person? What's their motive? Is it to help you? Is it to make you feel healthier and happier? Or is it to sell, to get more followers and to sell, to sell things, you know? No, and I think that's, that's the big thing right there. <laughs> There's the motivation behind things. And and excuse me for anyone listening, I don't normally talk numbers, but because that specific number kept coming up over and over and over again, I was like, there's something to this. This is this is interesting, right? Um, but I, I love what you just said. So, you know, Millie, you've shared so much information and you know, I love what you're doing to help people. If anybody listening does want your help or does want to work with you, how can they find you? Well, if you're interested in diet proofing your daughter, you can find me at Nourish Her, which is Nourish Her with two H's, so nourishher.com. Um, there's information about group programs I do, individual counseling, and my book, which will have a lot more information about a lot of the things we spoke about today. Um, and if you have a child with diabetes or pre-diabetes, you can also find me at ameliasherry.com. So it's Amelia, S-H-E-R-R-Y.com. Um, and that's it. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about these things. They're really, they're really challenging and confusing as parents. Well, I appreciate you being on here. Um, you hit on so many big topics that I know I get asked a lot and I know lots of other parents are struggling with. So thank you so very much for being here. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you.
This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find 